Hey, it's Mike McEntee. He didn't wait. He was going to wait maybe 14 days. Uh-uh. Governor Dayton uh, went and vetoed a pair of big bills that Republicans had piled together, hoping he had no other option but to sign them. Uh, one of the bill was changing Minnesota's tax system to conform with federal tax changes. Dayton said it was a giveaway to corporations. It's going to cause some problems on your tax forms, but you know, you may be able to change that in January when the legislature gets together again. And the other was a spending bill with many provisions that mostly were about policy. And Dayton found this nearly 1,000-page bill unacceptable. He said that many lawmakers are saying he should have waited until they had time to persuade him not to veto the bills. But Dayton says he never wanted to, that they, the other legislators never wanted to really make an agreement with him. The session was, was not about working out agreements with me. It wasn't even about working out to the best interests of people in Minnesota. It was about the House Republicans cozying up to the money special interests, giving what they wanted on opioids and elder care and NRA and uh, the Minnesota care buy-in, uh, nixing that. And then... Uh, getting their talking points to go around uh, the state and claim that I vetoed some important measures, which I uh, unfortunately were part of the bill. I know you're shocked that you're shocked that this was about politics in 2018, but that's what it was. It's about the 2018 election and Governor Dayton would have no part of it. Now, Minnesota Senator Majority Leader uh, Paul Gazelka said that he was caught by surprise, even though Dayton had warned Republican Party leaders that if they put policy in the two bills that he didn't like, that he would veto them. Uh, Dayton had made it clear that he would not have a special session, and this is what Gazelka had to say. So I don't know where we go from here. I mean, the, these are vetoed. Session's over. We're moving towards the, the end of this year with the governor. I don't know where we go. We have another election, and that's going to be, I'm sure governor candidates from both sides of the aisle are going to be talking about what's important and what's not important, and maybe it will deter- be determined there. But yeah, House Speaker Kurt Dout was even more harsh in his assessment. He said, quote, this session isn't a failure. Our governor is a failure. And then he said his parking spot is almost always empty. He has not been engaged in the job. I want to hear what you think about what happened, the train wreck here at the end of the uh, legislative session. We're going to open up the phones here later on the program at 952-946-6205. I want to hear what your thoughts are. Did Governor Dayton do the right thing? Should he have held his nose and still you know, assign some of those bills. We'll talk about that coming up here uh, a little bit later on the program, and I want to hear from you. But as usual, let's turn to Donald Trump here for a moment, because most are going to agree that his behavior as president has been a departure from the past. He has a dubious relationship with the truth and changes his stances at will. But his behavior is not unprecedented in American politics. Our next guest says we don't have to look much further than next door to Wisconsin and then maybe back a few decades. And we may find a very similar political personality whose rise to power tore apart this nation. Joining us right now is retired American history professor Ellen Schrecker, who writes for the nation. Uh, Professor Schrecker, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to have you on. And if people couldn't guess, we were, I was speaking about U.S. Senator from Wisconsin, Joe McCarthy, who you've studied and written about extensively about McCarthy and McCarthyism. Why do you find Joe McCarthy and McCarthyism so fascinating and that you've spent so much time studying him? Well, I'm somewhat long in the tooth. It's when I grew up, and it was just amazing that this man... Uh, quite an aberrant character, somewhat like our current president, who has a somewhat unusual relationship with the truth. Mm-hmm. He has also, like our current president, uh, is a very brilliant manipulator of the media. For example, in those days, it was newspapers, not Twitters. And he used to release his charges of quote-unquote, communists in the State Department, uh, like five minutes before reporters had to file their stories so they couldn't do any research and find out that his allegations were totally fake. A brilliant man. Um, And one of the main similarities 
that I found between McCarthy and the current president is that they tend to be treated as aberrations. You know, they're flamboyant politicians, definitely larger than life, and extremely uh, aberrant in their behavior and their uh, refusal to work according to rules. But, in fact, they are also uh, very much part of broader political movements that are trying to undo a lot of democratic reforms and trying to um, not just make themselves, I mean, they're opportunistic politicians, but they're also um, trying to carry out a deeply partisan campaign that is largely attacking the Democratic Party and its politicians. Uh, McCarthy came on the scene in 1950. Uh, the Republicans had been planning to win the election, the presidential election in 1948, and they had been trying to roll back the New Deal of Franklin Roosevelt. Um, it didn't work. Henry, Harry Truman became reelected. He wanted to expand the welfare state. He was even trying to get something like what we would call today um, Medicare for all. Uh, couldn't get anywhere because the Republicans discovered that by making charges of communist subversion within the Truman administration, they could get a lot of publicity and throw the Democratic administration off its stride. And, in fact, that's what McCarthy did. And he did it with the support of the most respectable leaders within the Republican Party. Just like today, we see the Republican Party sort of cringing sometimes at what Trump is doing, but they're certainly not um, stopping him in any way and facilitating everything he does up until now, pretty much. Uh, that happened with McCarthy. For example, the most highly respected uh, senator, Republican senator at the time, was Robert Taft of Ohio. And he sent a letter, which I've seen, in which he says to McCarthy, if uh, something on the order of, if one charge doesn't stick, make another. So what we're seeing is an establishment, a political establishment on the right, uh, highly partisan Republicans uh, in the 1950s backing McCarthy, uh, even though they know he lies, even though they know he's way off base, and uh, profiting from it in a partisan manner, just the way uh, Trump is enacting uh, the Republican Party's dream agenda while um, distracting the entire nation through his um, nutty behavior. It's a very so, similar thing. So uh, remind us what happened to Joe McCarthy, and does a similar fate await Donald Trump? Well, they weren't identical people. Um, in the first place, McCarthy... Mm, uh, never had as much power as Trump. He was only a senator, after all. Um, and uh, what happened to him was finally he just went too far. He was really out of control. He was drinking heavily, among other things. And he, uh, in 1953 and 50, beginning of 1954, he began to make charges against the army, claiming it was soft on communism. Well, the president at the time, Dwight Eisenhower, was very popular, and he, of course, was a former general who had come up his whole career was in the Army. So he turned on McCarthy quietly, using proxies, and was able, essentially, to um, expose him as a braggart and um, get the Senate to censure him, which they did. Um, but... You know, this was being done by the mainstream Republican establishment. 
Now, uh, Trump would have to be impeached, probably. Uh, and we don't see any signs of the mainstream Republican establishment uh, doing very much to, um, what should we say, uh, curtail his activities at this point. Um, I think what's more significant, though, is that both men are kind of distractions. And I really think they are distractions. Mm-hmm. Um who are, in a sense, almost being used by forces that have a very strong, very conservative, I would say reactionary um, agenda that they want to put over on the American people. And by distracting uh, attention to these personalities, the policies that are being implemented by this right-wing um, movement. It was called McCarthyism. I don't know if we'll call it Trumpism. It's certainly uh, a movement that's trying to roll back uh, civil rights. It's trying to roll back today women's rights. It's trying to do God only knows what in international affairs, but it's very scary. Uh, and what is the media paying attention to? It's, you know, those payments to pornographic movie actresses. Well, that um, can distract people from the real damage. Uh, you know, I'm sorry for Mrs. Trump, but sh- she knew what she was getting into. Uh, but that's not what the, the focus of our political um, conversation should be about. It should be about uh, voting rights. It should be about gerrymandering. It should be about restoring our democratic system. It shouldn't just be about um, what uh, happened to uh, the Russians who were talking to Trump's son-in-law. That's mm-hmm not insignificant, but it's not central to what's really happening today. We're speaking with retired American history professor Ellen Schrecker, who writes for The Nation. We're talking about the parallels between Donald Trump and a man from long ago, Senator Joe McCarthy, who was from Wisconsin. I have to ask, because uh, we, you hope that every disaster has a silver lining when Joe McCarthy when he was the rise of Joe McCarthy and then the fall of Joe McCarthy we learned a little bit about how to deal with problems like that although from what you're saying here it seems like we've forgotten a lot of the lessons is there anything that's going to good that may come out of the experience of Donald Trump being president uh, you know ultimately if indeed he falls because of uh, his missteps here or or is there anything that we can say for what's happening right now that might be good I wish there was. I'm really very worried. I mean, you know, besides having a uh, almost oligarchical movement now, what we're seeing is rich people um, buying elections, uh, rich people able to mount campaigns that terrify ordinary politicians. Um, we're seeing our democracy being eroded to such an extent that I don't know whether um, an impeachment of Donald Trump would make that much of a difference. You know, it's beginning to mobilize people, and there is hope there. There's Black Lives Matter. There are these high school students now standing up against the NRA. We're beginning to see resistance, but it's a huge struggle. And um, focusing only on Trump, focusing only on this clearly aberrant character may divert us from some of the structural problems that we absolutely have to deal with um, if we are to have a vibrant, functioning democracy in which the people have a little more control than they do now. All right. 
We have been speaking with uh, Ellen Trucker. She writes for The Nation, and uh, she's a retired American history professor who knows a lot about Joe McCarthy and McCarthyism. You can find what she writes over at thenation.com. Uh, Ellen, thank you so much for joining us today. For those of us who did obviously are too young to have lived through that era, I appreciate the wisdom that you bring and maybe the lessons that it, uh, it taught us and maybe we'll remember and have a way of getting out of it this time. I certainly hope so. And thank you very much. All right. We're going to take a break here now, folks. But next on the Mike McEntee Show, we're going to talk about some of those Donald Trump distractions, the Trump scandal roundup. That's all next year on the Mike McEntee Show. This is Pat with PJW Automotive. How do you choose an automotive repair shop? I bet you look for quality and dependability. You want someone you can trust to do the job right the first time. It saves you money and hassle because you're not coming back over and over again. My team of top-notch automotive specialists knows vehicles inside and out, and I guarantee it's worth the drive to PJW Automotive. One exit north of 694 on 35W and online at pjwauto.com. Prairie Oaks Memorial Eco Gardens is the first green cemetery in Minnesota. It's a beautiful, peaceful place where burials are celebrations of life with as little impact on the environment as possible. Tony Weber founded it because he wants to leave a green legacy for his grandchildren, something many of us might feel. Learn more. Visit the website mngreengraves.com. Give them a call. The goal is so meaningful, so positive, it might be right for you. Prairie Oaks Memorial Eco Gardens. Hi, Matt McNeil for Rudy Luther Toyota. My first Toyota love was the RAV4 back in 1998. When I was traveling in February, I needed a rental car, and I jumped at the opportunity to drive one again. The RAV4 is fantastic with all the bells and whistles you need, and it has all the modern safety features to keep us safe. Comfort as we vacationed. It fit all five of us and our luggage with ease. I was able to revisit my first love. Now, you can fall in love for yourself by test driving a RAV4 today at Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169. This is Dan Brooks, Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with RBC Wealth Management. For the past 19 years, I've been managing wealth for individuals, institutions, and corporate retirement plan sponsors. Throughout my career, I have seen common traits in successful investors. They include the courage to be diversified, the willingness to work with a professional, the discipline to follow a plan, and patience. I welcome the opportunity to help contribute to your financial success. Call me at 612-371-2396. Welcome back to the Mike McEntee Show. How desperate was the Trump campaign in 2016 to get dirt on Hillary Clinton? New documents shed some light on that. Joining us to discuss that and other Trump-related scandals is Mother Jones, D.C. reporter Dan Friedman. Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good to have you on here. I know it's a busy day in D.C., but I'm glad you took some time here. Let's talk. Let's go back to that meeting with uh, Don Jr. in Trump Tower and all the stuff that we've learned about that. How, what What have we learned here that's going to put possibly put uh, Trump Jr. in jeopardy? Um, I think the primary thing is this is another meeting um, like the uh, June 2016 Trump Tower meeting where these um, Russians um, who were allegedly conveying dirt from the Russian government to the Trump campaign um, talked with Don Jr. and others. Like that meeting, this meeting uh, was an instance where the Trump campaign and the person of uh, Donald Trump Jr. welcomed um, offers of support from foreign governments. In this case, um, George Nader, who's this um, shady um American citizen who was advising the um, effective ruler of the United Arab Emirates um, offered the support of both the, the um, leader of the United Arab Emirates and the uh, crown, the uh, effective leader of Saudi Arabia. Um, so both these governments um, seem to be conveying through him uh, their interest in supporting President Trump. Um, unlike the um, meeting with the Russians in June, 
this meeting had pretty concrete results, although Trump Jr. denies that he, he claims that he rejected or wasn't interested in an offer that was made of social media help. Um, George Nader uh, did form a relationship, uh, according to this report in The New York Times, with um, various members of the Trump campaign and, and became an informal advisor to them. Um, and then after the campaign, he formed a partnership of sorts with Elliot Brody, a uh, guy who owned a defense con- uh, contracting company. Um, and they uh, proceeded to advocate on behalf, it would seem, of the United Arab Emirates and, and get pretty concrete results. Um, they, they got stuff done that was in the interest of the UAE. Uh, one of the things Elliot Brody was seeking with, at the behest of George Nader, at the behest then from the UAE, was the firing of Rex, Rex Tillerson. Rex Tillerson was fired. Um, so this is uh, there's a lot to this. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of names, a lot of different things kind of all weaving together. Let's back up on one of these, though, which is kind of, I think, the core of this and sometimes gets lost in this. What's wrong with accepting the support of foreign governments when you're running a campaign here in the United States? It's illegal. Um, you, you can't accept a, a thing of value from a foreign government uh, as part of a campaign. Um, which is, you know, perhaps why the, the the campaign denies that they accepted this social media help. Uh, but the, the uh, you know, there was a payment made to the social media company, which is another component of this, um, from this guy Nader, who was close to the rulers of the United Arab Emirates. Um, so there's a lot of legal jeopardy, I think, for the Trump campaign. And, and part of the report is that um, this is another thing that um, Special Counsel Robert Mueller is looking into. Now, besides the actual act, there's always the cover-up. Are any of the Trump officials here possibly uh, complicit with lying to Congress about this? Have they testified it about it, and are they? Uh, is there proof that they've lied? Yeah, it, um, Eric Prince is the founder of Blackwater, um, um, and is the brother of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. Um, he reportedly organized this meeting. He lives, uh, has lived since 2010. Um, in the UAE, in the United Arab Emirates, um, and has formed a relationship with the leaders there. Um, Eric Prince organized this meeting, which he brought uh, this guy, George Nader, um, and the, another guy named Joel Zamel from Israel um, to this meeting. And Prince, um, in November of 2017, last year, testified before the House Intelligence Committee, um, and he said under oath, that he had not had any contacts with the Trump campaign other than sending Steve Bannon, who was, uh, as we know, um, eventually chairman of the campaign, um, policy papers. So Prince um, appears, if this New York Times report on this meeting is accurate, to have lied to Congress, which is a crime, um, and he could theoretically be prosecuted for that. How about Don Trump Jr., uh, his involvement? You know, obviously he was involved in, in some of these meetings. Uh, we, we kind of mentioned at the top here that some of the documents that were released recently indicated that he was more enthusiastic about this meeting than uh, you know, the, the Trump administration wanted to let on. Does he face possible prosecution for anything that he's done or hasn't done or, ha- or it's revealed or hasn't revealed? Well, it's it's unclear. I mean, he, he so far, you know, he accepted... Uh, He took these meetings. Um, He seemed interested in cooperating and and accepting these offers of help. But, you know, he denies his attorney denies that that he accepted the actual thing that was offered in this meeting, which was um, some kind of assistance from uh, this Israeli social media company. Um, So. He, he certainly uh, has a lot of legal bills to worry about, but whether whether there's a prosecutable crime is, is not yet clear. And and then, of course, what everybody wonders, does any of this lead directly to Donald Trump? Does any of this touch him or does it just touch his associates and he's got deni- plausible deniability? There's a phrase we love to say that uh, he knew nothing about this and has nothing to do with any of this. Well, George Nader, who was, who was the, the guy in this meeting who... who offered the help of the UAE and Saudi Arabia to the Trump campaign is cooperating with the uh, Mueller investigation, the special counsel investigation. He's been offered reportedly limited immunity in exchange for his testimony um, or his, his cooperation. So he is telling um, 
federal prosecutors what he knows and, and what he knows may or may not implicate President Trump in, in a deal. Um, in the case of Nader, it would seem likely to involve um, the Saudis or the Emirates, um, and who were offering legal help to the Trump campaign. So, you know, we don't know exactly what he's telling them, but it, it could be bad for President Trump. And then finally, since, uh, you know, this is all political, and since uh, ultimately if Trump is removed from office, it's going it's to end up being a political act, I think, because that's what impeachment is. How is this playing with Congress? How is this playing with Republicans, the Democrats? Uh, I mean, are, how is this whole thing playing out there in D.C.? I, I think that the president has, has pretty effectively changed, and his allies in Congress have changed the, the, the uh, conversation to being about um, this um, baseless effectively baseless allegation that the FBI spied on his campaign. The FBI used an informant um, to look into credible allegations uh, that his campaign had contacts and perhaps cooperation with the Russians. After learning that, they, they used the informant they had to try to seek more information on that. The, the president has changed the subject, um, I think, effectively to his allegations about that um, and not about this um, revelation about the outreach of the Saudis and the Emirates to his campaign and, and to what extent they accepted that help, um, which is, you know, one of many shoes to drop that indicate a unprecedented, arguably unprecedented level of corruption um, by the president and people around him. Um, and it is being uh, largely lost because I think um, Congress is not paying uh, that much attention. Like many people, they are perhaps a bit overwhelmed by the uh, pace and the complexity of some of these revelations. But this, the simple fact is that at the base of this, a lot of them seem to be um, corrupt individuals seeking to take advantage of access to President Trump with or without his knowledge um, to enrich themselves. Um, and and it, it seems like we're just scratching the surface, so to speak, of what went on there unprecedented level of corruption and then being lost in the mix. Those are two phrases I didn't ever think we'd hear about, but then again, I never thought we'd have Donald Trump as president. We've, we've been speaking with uh, Mother Jones DC reporter Dan Friedman about what's happening in Washington with all of these various scandals. Hey, Dan, I, I appreciate you uh, filling us in today. Thank you. Thank you for uh, letting me try to explain this. Well, still ahead on the Mike McEntee Show, your opportunity to weigh in on the big story of the day. Governor Mark D Dayton vetoing a pair of bills that really compromised most of what the Republicans wanted to pass this session. And so later on the show, we're going to open up the phones to your comment. But next, why a bunch of people in Minneapolis are about to lose their homes through no fault of their own. We'll talk to an organization that is helping them to fight back. At Pride Institute, being LGBTQ plus is the norm, not the exception. Their highly trained and skilled staff understand your issues and will help you live a happy, healthy life as a proud LGBTQ plus person. They offer you hope to overcome your addiction and live the life you want. Their treatment programs are designed to assist you in developing the knowledge, skills, and attitudes for long-term recovery. Therapy groups include health education, LGBTQ issues, HIV and chronic illness, trauma, grief and loss, transgender support, nicotine recovery, education, and sexual health. Pride Institute offers a residential treatment program, a partial hospitalization program that includes day programming with lodging, and an intensive outpatient program. If you or someone in your life can benefit from guidance and coping skills, life balance, and other tools necessary for long-term recovery, check them out at pride-institute.com or call 800-547-7433 now. Hi, Gregory Rich, owner of Habitation Furnishing and Design and host of Drink in the Style right here on AM 950. Hey, I've only got a few seconds, so here's the deal. Habitation is the coolest furniture store in town. Not only have we got some of the most exceptional furniture in the cities, but in many cases, Habitation can offer you store credit on your existing furniture. Stop in, talk to one of our designers, and let us help you make your home exceptional. Habitation Furnishing and Design, 4317 Excelsior Boulevard in St. Louis Park. 
Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at Seward.coo. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Shamblot from Shamblot Family Dentistry. We're the fear-free, get-you-out-of-pain-now dental office. We always offer a free exam and x-rays for new patients because we believe you shouldn't have to pay to find out what's wrong with your teeth. Call today. We're open early and late and Saturdays to fit your schedule. As my daughter Rachel says, If you don't see my dad, please see another dentist. Take care of your teeth because they're the only ones you get. Call 1-800-FIX-MY-TEETH or visit fixmyteeth.us. With your AM 950 weather, I'm Hunter Hawes. Tonight, mostly cloudy with a low around 68. Thursday, mostly sunny with a high near 90. And Friday, mostly sunny with a high near 91. The Green Home Doctor. 80% of homes in the market need help with air sealing and insulation. The Green Home Doctor will work with you to make your home less leaky and comfortable in both the winter and summer. They can help you get energy rebates from XL and CenterPoint. The only regret from clients is that they didn't call sooner. So find out more at greenhomedoctor.com. That's greenhome.com. DR.com. M950. Uh, the big news of the day that we've been talking about, Governor Mark Dayton vetoed a pair of bills that the Republicans kind of just crammed all the stuff they wanted into. Uh, the, the mega omnibus bill, I think, is what they was one of the names for it. It had all sorts of names. But it was this 1,000-page uh, document that uh, talked about a lot of things, had very little budget in it, so he couldn't line-item veto much out of the thing. And so Governor Dayton said, well, I'm sorry, folks. I warned you I was going to do this, and he vetoed it. And he also vetoed the tax bill, which uh, he said gave away a lot of money to big corporations. So uh, what I'd like to do, I know we were planning to have a guest here, but our guest is not available at the moment. So I'd like to open up the phones right now for you, 952-946-6205. What do you think? Should ha- Governor Dayton have done that right away? A lot of folks are worried about some of the, the things that were in the bill. There was stuff for opioids. There was stuff to help the disabled community. Uh, there was a lot of folks who were upset about that. There were there was a lot of what the Republicans said were good things in the bill. I think some Democrats obviously would agree that there were good things in the bill. But they could. there were so many bad things in the bill that Governor Dayton said he didn't want to pass it. Nine five, or excuse me, sign it. 952-946-6205 is the number. I want to give you one other thing here to talk about and think about, and maybe you're more interested in this than local politics. It is political, though. Uh, the N- NFL, the NFL has told players that they cannot stand, they cannot kneel on the field uh, during the performance of the national anthem. Uh, they could remain in the locker room if they prefer, but if they do and they go out on the field and they, uh, if they kneel or if they uh, you know, protest essentially during the national anthem, they or their team could be fined. Uh, this is what Donald Trump has been prodding the NFL to do for nearly nine months. Uh, he's been attacking them during the 2017 season that has really kind of dogged the league's owners and today, of course, he proclaimed victory that he's won in this battle, if you have some thoughts on that. So we'll talk about vetoes. We'll talk about the NFL uh, kneeling, uh, whatever you want to here. Uh, 952-946-6205 is the number. Carol from Egan wants to talk about Mark Dayton. Hello, Carol. Oh, I'm in total agreement with the governor. I mean, I mean, he was so clear from the beginning of this session what he wanted to get done, and I believe that he sincerely meant it when he said he would sit down with them and he would negotiate with them, and they never even invited him in. They just filled out all this junk and sent it to his desk. Yeah, he uh, he, he he said there was really no uh, discussion on, on a lot of these things. It was just, you know, they were going to cram it down his throat, and he didn't feel like that was the way to do it. 
And he said after afterwards, you know, Senator Gazalka was saying, well, well, why didn't you wait until, you know, you had a chance to talk to me after, you know, after the session? And Dayton's, you know, not response, but what he said ahead of that was just, I'm sorry, you had all session to come and talk to me and work this stuff out. And I told you, you'd get one bite at the apple and that was it. Uh, so, I, you know, I, go ahead, go ahead. I think, it, I think it goes back to the first, I can't remember which one it was, but there was one where they fooled him, and he went for it. And, I, you know, there's an old saying, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And I really think that was it. But I have to ask you, what was the thing about the national anthem? Oh, okay. That's the, uh, the NFL owners have approved a new policy that says that everybody on the team has to stand for the national anthem if they're out on the field. Otherwise, they can remain in the locker room. And if you kneel or protest during the national anthem, you will be fined. The team will be fined or you will be fined that the players will be fined. But the players were not protesting the national anthem. I know that. That, uh, it, Thank That's you for making so that stupid. distinction. That Thank you for making that distinction. They are not protesting the national anthem. They are using the moment to make a statement about the way that this country has been treating black Americans. And that yeah. is what that's about. And that I think that the players union has promised to to push back on that. So we're going to have to see what's going on. You have some thoughts on that? I mean, obviously you do. So. Oh yeah, I hope I hope they do. And I mean, it's for me, it's like okay, boycott the NFL. Boycott the NFL. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's okay, simple. Carol. I, I appreciate the phone call. Thank you very much. 952-946-6205. If you have a thought on either of these topics, you know, know that they're kind of uh, opposite ends of the spectrum, but they're they're both really about what the, uh, you know, about what Donald Trump Republicans have been trying to do to America. And in this particular case, it was what the Republicans here in Minnesota were trying to cram down our throats. Governor Dayton vetoed it. In the end, <laughs> and then uh, on the other end, it's uh, about what the, uh, about what Donald Trump would like to cram down our throats. Uh, respect for the flag respect you know salute everybody and don't talk about black americans that's what really that's about 952-946-6205 randy is on the phone he wants to talk i think about dayton hey randy how you doing hi uh yeah good um i do want to talk about dayton but on the nfl i think it's a real can i call bs i guess i can say that because you can say that you can say that you have now so <laughs> I know I can't go any further than that, but yeah, that's total crap decision because they're afraid, and it's about their money. But anyway, um, uh, I think I think it's great that Dayton vetoed those, and he did it right away instead of stretching it out and making it into more drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, he told them what the deal was, and he said, "You know, get get it together." I'm not going to play games. And Dowd thinks he can make this work. He thinks he can make this work politically. And I think he may have miscalculated. I hope yeah. he has, but I think he has. It, it, elections matter, and that's that's really, I think, the, the point here is that if this right. was a, a different uh, a different power structure right now where Democrats had at least one, either the House or the Senate, this would be a whole different discussion. Uh, there would have been some negotiation. There would have been some compromise. But in this case, it was just take it or leave it. And Governor Dayton decided right. to leave it. And I think it's great that he said, no, you guys can go away. Because that's, that's the game that the Republicans want to play. And then they want to say, oh, it's Dayton's fault. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> he served up some poop pie and he didn't want to eat it. So there you go. You can have it back. Yep, they play chicken, and uh, Dayton did not blink. So, hey, uh, Randy, appreciate the thoughts on those topics. Thank you so much. Uh, we let's get back to the uh, the topic we were going to discuss here. And by the way, we can we can pick up that topic here after the break. But uh, I wanted to talk about this. Uh, there's a Minneapolis landlord who has been not keeping up his properties, that and that on. means a lot of people are soon going to be out of a home. Uh, Mahmoud Khan owns dozens of buildings in North Minneapolis, and the city is about to kick everyone out of them because they're in such bad repair. Now, a tenants' right group says that the city should buy the property properties, fix them up, and maybe sell them to the tenants. Joining us to talk about what's happening is the co-director of that group, uh, Roberto De La Riva, is that right, right? of the United Renters for yes. Justice. Uh, Roberto, you welcome to the it. program. 
Hey, thank you so much. I'm actually here. We're grilling out with, um, at the same time, a bunch of the different con residents right now planning what our next steps are. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk, let's talk about what the situation is. Uh, how many people, what's the condition of these apartments or homes? What, what are people facing right now? Yeah, so essentially what happened here is we had roughly around 50 properties, okay, whose um, license got revoked. His name was Mahmoud Khan. Mm-hmm. And his license got revoked, and the city decided to strip the license away because of the tremendous violations that we had seen in the homes. But what ended up happening is it's been a very confusing process because as the license was revoked, many different players have gotten involved, service organizations, uh, nonprofits, that have been wanting to try to fix up the homes but actually haven't been actually looking at deeper solutions for what's going on. We have a landlord who was making about $66,000 a month on all of his properties, not repairing any of them, and essentially collecting um, uh, rent from Hennepin County, collecting rent from many of the people that were living in these units. Now, the, the court has decided that there isn't enough money coming in to pay for uh, fixing these up and making them habitable. So the rent up, essentially the rent's not going to cover the upgrades, so they're not viable. Uh, the landlord disagrees, thinks that he could make it work. What do you think? What do you think should be happening here? So, you know, that's a really important idea here because we have to talk about landlord power um, in Minneapolis. Tenants don't have a lot of power if they don't organize. And so the landlord was able to completely suck dry these units, um, collect the money, and now he's benefiting from the situation because um, he sucks dry these units, and the, the people that are coming in to fix it, they can't find the money to fix up the units because they've been so um, com- com- completely dilapidated. And what we want to have happen is since the city knew about these issues, is have the city buy the homes back and turn this into a special uh, affordable housing where we lower rents and fix up the homes. Because they knew about the violations for the last 10 years, and you can't just strip licenses and tell tenants to vacate. It's impossible. Now, so what we'd like uh, to see is yeah? people stay in their homes, people be able to decrease the rents and get the fixes that they need so that we can keep the north side community intact as well. Now, Mayor Jacob Fry has made uh, affordable housing. It was one of the big campaign pledges he's made. Have you approached him about this? Have you heard anything from the mayor on what he may or may not do? Yeah, we actually met with the mayor with a lot of the tenants here that are in, in the barbecue, and he said this was his number one priority. And we haven't really seen much coming out of him, but we're going to be meeting with him and all the tenants next week to talk about exactly what people want and how this situation has been very stressful and intense for the families. Let's let's back up here. I mean, obviously, this is a bad situation. Uh, the fact that this is going on is a bad situation. But the question is, how did we get here? How do we get to the point where rental homes are so in such bad condition that the government has to toss people out? Doesn't the city do inspections? Yeah, there's there was about um, very very few inspectors, and the inspectors that are in the city in Minneapolis, of course, this is changing as we've been organizing and bringing tenants together. They don't actually inspect. Um, that actually force the homes to get fixed. So what ends up happening here is that it's a slap on the wrist and it's inside the landlord's business model. And so they pay the fine, the $200, and they just keep collecting rents. And there's no way to hold these landlords accountable unless you bring residents together, organize collectively what's going on, and push for the demands that are greater. And this is when we've been able to see wins against different landlords here in Minneapolis. I'm sure you heard of the apartment shop situation, uh, the QT property situation, and so forth. Yeah, I, I, some people may have heard, you know, I've heard about that. I don't know if everybody has. How widespread is this problem? I mean, are we talking hundreds of people facing this, thousands of people that are in situations like this? Can you give me kind of any quantitative or, you know, give us a feel for that? Literally, it's hundreds. <clears throat> Say your name. Uh, my name is Tim Brown, and I'm part of the con portfolio. And there's literally hundreds, hundreds of tenants. It's... Uh, it's not only between us. It's a lot in the the, the Mexican American community, the Somali community, community, and of course the African American community. And, and, and coming from the organizational perspective, we we see calls coming in all the time of cases that we can't work on because we're so focused on you know the the bigger portfolios. And so we hear tenant abuse happening almost every day. People calling saying this is happening in terms of. 
uh, security deposits being stolen, showing incorrect homes and then renting them to a different person, collecting money, this kind of stuff. Yeah, we're speaking, by the way, with Roberto De La Riva of United Renters for Justice. And to that point, what you're saying is unless tenants organize, there is no real leverage here because it's a it's a slap on the wrist fine and the city does nothing to, to I mean, can they take away a license from a from a, a landlord that has lots of repeat offenses? Is there anything that the city can do that maybe they're not doing right now that they have the power to do? Well, just to put a little bit here is for for units that are four or more, so multifamily units, there's only two complaint-driven inspectors for over 90,000 units. And you're not actually, you don't have to inspect the units every year. It's every eight years or every six years, depending on what the tiering system. But when we started organizing, we found some of the worst units were in tier one. But landlords could just show one good unit and there could be 20 bad units in the home and they could escape it. Now, what you said about the license removal, we're in this situation right now with the con residents. They stripped the license, and guess who's footing the bill? It's the tenants. Mm -hmm. The tenants have to keep paying rent to get repairs. When they've been paying their rent and doing due diligence, the tenants are the ones who have to be forced out on August 31st. The tenants are the ones who actually aren't getting any help with relocation assistance right now, as we hear. And so you can't just strip the license. You need a bigger solution. And this is why we're asking nonprofits to take the risk. But we're asking the city, you knew about this problem, buy the homes and keep the tenants there. So we're really, I think it sounds like we're dealing with two two situations that are tied to one problem. We have the immediate problem for these the folks who are in these homes that are you know, obviously going to be homeless unless something is done here by August. And then we're dealing uh, with the underlying causes. And you said that we need, that there are deeper solutions. You use that phrase. When you're talking about that, what are the deeper solutions to the problem that we're dealing with here? Um, well, there's a lot of different things that you could do in the policy front that would actually help tenants be more empowered in the process because landlords can't have this much power. So we need rent control. But we need rent control as a package of protections. Stabilization. Don't increase rents um, right now because people cannot pay for increased rents when repairs aren't being done. That's one. We need just cause protection against eviction. We need this thing in which you can't just evict a tenant whenever you want. You actually have to have just cause to evict them. Um, There's another important thing is that we wanted rent escrow account program to be created in Minneapolis. This is where city inspectors go into units, see the issues, and then immediately write down the rent until something happens. So an inspector would come in, drop your rent. They would go into a con residence in any of the con homes. They would drop the rent 50%, and they say, you're not going to be able to collect full rent until you can actually see the fixes of the homes until there's actually proof. But then the deeper solution here is that we need more community models. We cannot let these landlords profit so much. We've seen 60 to 70% profit margins. And what I'm saying is, okay, Con, collect your $50,000, collect your $66,000, and just put 30 Gs into your unit so that they're fixed. This is the thing. But I have to come back to the issue that this is in North Minneapolis. Majority people of color, majority African Americans. Mm-hmm. This does not happen in a white neighborhood. It's not happening in Tangletown. And this is also an important issue when we put on the forefront of tenants' rights. And uh, affordable housing. And affordable housing. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And I do uh, want to kind of give some space here for one of the tenants to speak about what the situation and what it's been like to see this license get stripped, to have an administrator come in and fix the properties but not really fix them, to be nervous about eviction. So if anybody here wants to talk, there's uh, some... we got room. about a minute, I think, left here, Roberto. So uh, if, if somebody wants to talk, otherwise... Uh, uh, cool, yeah, let's finish. let's finish. Tim, how has it been in, in your process? Well, in my process, they uh, we have I have multiple problems, which I had to basically fix myself. And now that uh, Homeworks has come into the picture... They've came, and they've seen the problems, and what they did was the very minimal, which was um, fire detection, fire protection, and carbon monoxide. Um, as far as the draft problem, oh, my God, they barely did anything about that. And when they did finally come to fix the draft problem, the season is over. I mean, it's springtime now. In the wintertime, I'm freezing in the winter where air was coming in. But it was just a very slow and almost no as far as repair work. 
has been done. And it's wow. because the homes have been so neglected that, you know, you're jumping into a tornado here. Yes, definitely. Yeah, that's that's the problem. It's it's a a, a long neglect that uh, leads up to where we are. Hey, Roberto, we we do need to run, but I do appreciate uh, you and the other tenants uh, sharing what's going on. This is uh, we've been talking with Roberto De La Riva of United Renters for Justice. If you throw United Renters for Justice into Google, you can find out more about the organization. Hey, Roberto, thank you and uh, your your other folks there so much for talking to us today and sharing your stories. Sure, thank you for right. your time. Thank you. Thanks to all your listeners. All right, big hug. We're gonna take. We're going to take a break here on AM 950. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. April blizzards bring more than May flowers. They also bring those hot, steamy Minnesota summer days. Fortunately, Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is bringing you relief with its Spring Savings Sale. That's right, when you install a new furnace and air conditioner in May, you can save up to $1,700, escape the heat, and sleep comfortably all summer long. All at a great price. See Standard Heating's website for details at standardheatingdeals.com. That's standardheatingdeals.com. Some restrictions apply. Stages Theatre Company is dedicated to creating a space where diverse opinions, courageous dialogue, and community engagement is not only valued, but vital to our shared artistic and educational success. Stages Theatre Company creates a welcoming home for all. For over 30 years, Stages has supported quality theater programming for children. Stages gives opportunities for youth to be on stage, backstage, in the audience, and in the classroom. Whether you come to see a show, enroll a young person in a workshop, or benefit from their outreach programs in the community, Stages brings art to life. Learn about Stages Theater by going to stagestheater.org and become part of the magic of live theater by taking your family to an amazing show or enrolling someone you love in an education program. Stages Theater Company operates out of the Hopkins Center for the Arts, located in Main Street in the heart of downtown Hopkins. For more information on Stages Theater, go to stagestheater.org. That's stagestheater.org. This is Dan Brooks, Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with RBC Wealth Management. For the past 19 years, I've been managing wealth for individuals, institutions, and corporate retirement plan sponsors. Throughout my career, I've seen common traits in successful investors. They include the courage to be diversified, the willingness to work with a professional, the discipline to follow a plan, and patience. I welcome the opportunity to help contribute to your financial success. Call me at 612-371-2396. Rent and renting problems and uh, landlord problems. And uh, Julie wanted to weigh in on that from Minneapolis. Hi, Julie. How are you today? I'm good. Hello, Julie. Are you there? Thanks for taking my call. Um, Maybe I just, we don't have. Um, there we are. Okay, go ahead. When I um, heard about that predatory landlord, that I wondered what if anybody knew the um, percentage of um, people on rental assistance. I guess they said Hennepin County, so it would be county assistance mm-hmm. for rent supports um, and whether or not they would be able to afford rent of any sort were it not for the rent supports. I'm also reading um, um, a series of articles on the Times about this whole case. Apparently, um, a law firm did pro bono work for thousands of tenants 10,000 oh over mm-hmm. 30 years um so anyway um i i i think this is horrible <laughs> that this guy is so predatory yeah um but i, I, I um, hey, julia I, I gotta tell you we gotta run here i i like the point though that you're making on uh on predatory and the fact that uh, you know the connections there um, we got to go. A reminder, the best storytellers win. You can learn how to tell your stories by going to theuptake.org and sign up for classes at theuptake.org cl- that, dot, cl- uptake.org slash classes. I'm Mike McAtee. Mom, thanks. Thanks. <laughs>